Welcome to MACMA's Audience Architect, where we are crafting the future of audience engagement. Our mission, to dive into the intricacies of the ever-evolving media and publishing landscape through the sharp lens of audience and marketing professionals. Each episode will unravel the meaning and perspective on trends that are shaping the industry. I'm your host, Bill Levine. Welcome to episode seven of the Audience Architect podcast, the first of 2024, a hopefully less bizarre and unsettling year than 2023, although somehow I'm skeptical. Welcome to today's episode, where we have the pleasure of hosting a truly multifaceted media expert, Peter Houston. Peter is not just a publisher, but a seasoned podcaster, insightful media commentator, and a dynamic freelance journalist and content creator. Peter, alongside Joanna Cummings, is the co-founder and editor of the Grub Street Journal, a print magazine celebrating journalism and the enduring magic of paper. We'll get back to that in a minute. Peter has been at the helm of Flipping Pages Media since January 13, demonstrating over a decade of commitment and innovation in media and publishing. Peter's voice is also familiar to many through Media Voices, a weekly podcast offering a comprehensive look at news and views from across the media world. Since July 2021, he has co-hosted this show, bringing his unique insights to discussions featuring leading figures from various sectors from Future PLC, Time, Good Housekeeping, Rolling Stone UK, Morning Brew, The Atlantic, and on topics from robot journalism to local news to no quick fixes in media to improving the mental health of people working in media. Another feather in Peter's cap is his role as co-founder of the Publisher Podcast Awards, an initiative he's been part of since September 2019. This platform celebrates the best in the world of publishing podcasts, and Peter, I expect an inside track for nominations for Audience Architect. His expertise also shines through his past roles, including as the editor-at-large for the Media Briefing, where he contributed significant content and analysis, and in his leadership positions of Advanced Star Communications, where we intersected briefly, and finally a couple of gigs as content development manager in Hong Kong. With such a rich and varied background, Peter brings a wealth of knowledge and experience in content strategy, editorial management, and the ever-evolving media landscape. Today, we are set to talk about a, a counterintuitive topic that many have now written off as dead and buried, the magazine. So without further ado, let's welcome Peter Houston to the show. Hi, Peter. Hello. And... Peter, like legally, do we need to formally disclose that we work together and that our opinions may not reflect the views of either MacMore or any sane media or magazine publishing executives? Well, it, it definitely might shape the conversation, I would imagine. Um, <laughs> we've had a lot of conversations in the past, not so much recently, but yeah, I mean, it was, that was an interesting and fun time. Absolutely. So to Grub Street Journal... Launched last April as a print magazine, and this is, this is what you say on your website, we've been asked if Grub Street is a love letter to magazines. The answer, absolutely not. We love magazines, but we know there are issues. Maybe think of Grub Street as a family intervention or a call to action from the therapist's couch, all packed into a 68-page print publications, champions slow journalism, and celebrates the craft of writing and storytelling. So what was the genesis for Grub Street, Peter? How did the idea come about? Okay, that's, you can, I can tell that story in two halves, okay? I'll go back to 2014. And back then, I did a little A5 book called the magazine diaries um and i had it so i had this conversation with uh, nikki simpson who's at the international magazine center about just how basically no one was properly talking about the impact to the digital transition on magazine people not i mean everyone was talking about the kpis and the targets and the challenges and that but they weren't talking about how freaked out they were or how excited they were, really the, the, the kind of human issues. So I ended up doing this 100-page, actually it wasn't 100 pages, it was 100 stories of 100 words written oh, wow. by 100 magazine people. Um, and it was basically in 100 words, they had to say how the digital transition made them feel. There's a brilliant, brilliant New Yorker ca cartoon 
and it's Waldo, Wally as we call him in the UK, and he's sat at a bar, and he's clearly three or four drinks in, and he's saying to the bartender, everyone's always asking, where's Wally? No one ever asks, how's Wally? And that, to <laughs> me, was what was going on in magazines. So I did that, and it, that was in 2014, and, you know, life takes over. Um, I always wanted to do more with it, but didn't ever get to anything. Tried to resurrect it digitally during the pandemic. Um, you know, people, magazine people telling stories about what was going on with COVID. And it, it just felt really flat because everyone was having the same kind of experience, which was absolutely doing their best to survive. There was no, you know, that idea that you need friction in a narrative to make it work. There was none of that. Everyone was in exactly the same page. They were just trying to get through. But that kind of sparked an interest again. And I, I resurrected the magazine diaries as a substack. Um, meanwhile, I've, uh, I met, uh, Joanna and we, we're in a relationship. We live together. We're getting married next year. Woohoo. Um, yeah. And, uh, a big thing we have in common is magazines. She's a, a magazine editor. She's worked in the same kind of weird life sciences titles as we have. Um, but she's also worked in craft magazines on the newsstand. So we talked a lot as a relationship developed. We talked a lot about magazines. And one of the things that came back up was this magazine diaries thing. She did a, a thing again with Nikki Simpson at the International Magazine Center, a magazine in a day where she did this print title um, basically telling the story of the conference. And we loved that. You know, I was there, she was there. This thing came through the door and it was amazing. And we just kind of looked at each other and thought, you know what, let's just start a magazine. And that that really was the kind of, the starting point was let's start a magazine. Um, what was going to be in it at that point, we didn't really know what shape it was going to take, we didn't really know, but we knew we wanted to get it out there. Uh, so the first issue is the Don Quixote issue. What kind of idiots still make magazines? Uh, <laughs> and we launched it on April the 1st, April Fool's Day. Perfect. Uh, and, you know, between that conversation, I guess, in September, October, uh, until we launched it in April, it was all about shaping it. It was all about what do we really want to do? What value can we bring? Um, yeah, and that's why that's where it came from. So tell tell us a little about you know the kind of content that's in the Grub Street Journal. So it breaks. I don't know. It maybe breaks into three different areas. One is one. Is, I mean, it's a B two B magazine, right? It may not recognize it off the bat as a B two B magazine because you know the covers are different and the tone is not. Excuse me. The tone is not always family friendly. Um, we we use we use words that you might not hear on on your your family shows. Um, but we we're kind of trying to tell stories about the business, the magazine business. So, how do you do things? Um, why do you do things? What happens when you do certain things? You know, real kind of nuts and bolts, B B stuff. But then we're also talking about, you know, the the kind of people that are doing these things. So, why? What are their motivations in publishing a magazine? Um, what do they hope to achieve in publishing a magazine? For some people, that's straightforward, making making money, right? And you know, that's not a bad thing. For other people, it's because they want to change the world. Um, or they want to support a particular group. And we try and get into that as much as we get into the, the kind of bottom line conversations. And then I think the last one is we just try and have some fun. We're not, we, this is not our day jobs, right? We, we work for other people doing other things to, to pay the rent. So someone told me once that the most important thing, maybe you actually, the most important thing when you're doing a job is to, is either to make money, learn something, or have a lot of fun. 
Um, and if you can tick two of those boxes, then you're probably a fairly happy individual. Uh, and I, we definitely, we're working on the money part, but we definitely are learning something and we're definitely having a lot of fun. So the last part of the magazine is really just what can we, you know, what can we do that's funny or, uh, we did a, we did a, a agony ant column where we went to chat GPT. We called it anti AI and our, <laughs> our AI agony ant, we told it only give us wrong answers. You know, so he said, how do I sell more copies of my print magazine? And one of the things he said was, well, dress your delivery people up as clowns and then people will enjoy it coming to the door. Yeah, (laughs) dumb stuff like that. Um, I think what we want is for people to remember, is to remember the privilege of working in this industry. We know it's really hard. We know that. We do it. And we know that budgets are tight and we know that people are getting laid off and we don't, our, our little tagline is brutally honest, eternally optimistic. So we know all that stuff. We know this is a tough business and it's not the business that it used to be, but it's also an incredible privilege to work in magazines. You know, the idea that you get access to people that normal people don't get access to that you hear stories that normal people wouldn't hear. And then you've got a platform to talk to people and, I don't know, change their minds, make them better at their work. I don't know, whatever it is, you, you've got that influence and you're not in a, not in a TikTok influencer kind of way, in a, a, a full on real life kind of way. I was at a, at a trade show, um, not too long ago and. I'd say this woman who we met was a millennial and we had a couple copies of the magazine that I'm representing now called Inside Precision Medicine. Nobody really wants to take it. They're just kind of looking at it to make sure that you are a real entity. But this woman, she shocked me. She, she grabbed and, and, and started stroking the, the magazine itself. And, you know, is that, is that, is, is the physicality of a magazine going to make uh, a kind of comeback in that, in that, in that nostalgic sense, sort of like vinyl records are? Well, I just wrote a piece saying magazines are not, or print is not like vinyl. I just wrote it for Media Voices. And I'll explain why. But yeah, you're right. And there's a resurgence there. Um, I actually, I don't talk about it as, as a resurgence. I don't like that word because I think it sets expectations that are maybe unrealistic. So I don't like to talk about a resurgence particularly, but it's the wrong word, I think, because I think it sets expectations that are possibly unrealistic. I like to think of the idea as there's a reinvention going on and each brand that is getting back into print is reinventing themselves in a special way. Why I don't like the vinyl comparison. So vinyl in the eighties fundamentally went away. You know, there was a point where there was no commercial vinyl production in the world. There was no vinyl presses on the planet other than maybe some guys doing some hobby type stuff. And then about 16, 17 years ago, this comeback started so it went from absolutely zero to what it is today and it's grown every year for 15 16 17 years there's been growth in vinyl sales to the point now where it's you know this is a a realistic expectation for any musician or band to make some money from vinyl crazy magazine publishing never went away you know, if you look at the numbers, FIP actually just did a, a, a print report probably in the middle of last year, or middle of this year, sorry. I'm already in 2024. That shows you where my head's at. Um, and up to 80% of commercial, particularly in B2C, up to 80% of their revenue is still in print. So it didn't go away the way vinyl has. However... <laughs> It is shrinking all the time. 
So it's a different dynamic. And to, for people to say, oh, wow, we're having our vinyl moment, they're, they're forgetting how much effort and energy both bands and record companies put into growing that. And, and for magazine publishers in print, that is not going to happen unless they make a similar kind of effort. Uh, and I think there are definitely some people doing it, but that's why I, I like to talk about it more as a reinvention than a resurgence. It's, it's not necessarily going to be audience driven. It's going to be publisher driven and publishers have got to do different stuff for it to happen. No, no question. You know, a couple of weeks ago in New York City, James Hughes, um, the now almost former um, head of, we were talking about this, of, of FIP, um, he, he said, we're sitting in New York, people, and there isn't even, you know, where, where you know, much of this country's big publishers are, are headquartered, and there is no magazine trade group. Um, so I think your point about publishers doing it is true, but you know, what's it going to take to wake up? For example, like another thing that James said is maybe, maybe magazines become sort of a luxury item, but I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think they do become more of a luxury item, but you know, it's a, it's an affordable luxury, right? I mean, without, without exhibiting my middle-class privilege or whatever, <laughs> um, 10, in the UK, ten pounds in in the states, ten dollars for a magazine issue. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a a significant amount of money if you're having problems making ends meet. But if you're doing okay, or if you really want to treat yourself, you know they used to have that thing called the lipstick index, where you could you could gauge the the economic difficulties of a country by how many. People were buying lipsticks and because lipstick sales went up when times were bad because it was an affordable luxury. And I think magazines could be that affordable luxury. Um, I, I think, you know, luxury is a weird word, right? Luxury can mean Louis Vuitton handbags or it can just mean a 10 pound, $10 magazine issue. For magazines, I think that becomes about, um, lower frequency so it's probably not a, certainly not a weekly unless you're in a news game it's maybe not a monthly it's maybe a quarterly annual maybe it's annual but if you're going to go to that kind of frequency you better do something special so your paper needs to be really nice your print quality has to be nice you got to have good stories. That's where I think the slow journalism comes in. It's not disposable in any way. You know, you're not, you're putting this thing on your shelf and you're going to end up with five or six or however many of them. You're not just reading it and getting rid of it the way you would in the past with magazines. So yeah, I think that the luxuries maybe not, you know, it's a weird concept, but definitely high production values, lower frequency, higher price point. Savers just announced that they're going back into print. Uh, and the lady who is, owns that now, um, Kat Craddock, I think is her name. She did a brilliant blog post explaining why Savers going back into print. Fundamentally, it was because the audience wanted it to go back into print. Ever since it stopped printing, they've said, Oh, when are you going back into print? But the first thing she did when she announced that it was going back into print was say, look, this is going to be different than it used to be. We're not going to be publishing millions of copies. We're not going to be discounting a subscription or a newsstand rate so that we get the lists up so that we can sell advertising. It's a product that we are making and the price is going to represent the inputs, the actual manufacturing cost of this issue. It, it, it makes me think um, of a lot of, as far as the advertising side of it, get to the subscription back in a minute. But, you know, you hear so many advertisers saying we don't do print because it's not measurable. And sure, you can do your surveys every couple of issues or whatever. Um, and it, it shows that uh, the, our readers are engaged for almost an hour. But that doesn't that doesn't uh, that doesn't swing it. 
on the advertiser side, I think you're right. We, we, that a magazine has to do something special and have an impact. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, what are your thoughts on that? How do we bring advertisers back into the medium? I, th- I think part of that idea is cutting through the noise. I think the measurable thing is, yeah, we've been dealing with that for decades. And everyone says digital is measurable. Well, yeah, you know what? Half of what you're measuring is bots and not real human beings. So good luck to you. If you if all your budget is in programmatic at the moment, what are you actually getting from it? And I think that's why even in digital advertising, you're seeing people, they're not chasing scale the same way. They're chasing engagement. And I think whether that's digital or print, that's about doing something different. It's about doing something special. Um, you know, uh, people that are advertising in podcasts. So we've got, we've got the Media Voices podcast. One of the places that we have success is in doing sort of narrative documentary type things where we bring all stuff together. It's not that regular. You know, just fill this space with your, your host read or, or whatever. It's get involved in the creative process. Do something different. Do something that's properly aligned with what it is you're trying to say. And I think the thing is, the same thing is absolutely true in print. There's a magazine called Racket, um, which is about tennis. And one of the things that they did was a partnership with Wimbledon. Um, because, you know, they do great content. Well, Wimbledon's a great tournament and people want to be associated with that. So I think in print, what people have got to think about as an advertiser, what you've got to think about is that it's, again, it's almost that podcasting thing. You don't have a scale, but you do have an engagement, particularly if people are spending $10, 10, 10 pounds an issue. You know, they don't buy that for fun, right? They buy it because they want it or because they think it's cool or because they think it makes them look fantastic or whatever the reason is. There's an aspiration there that they're buying into. So if you're an advertiser, don't think that as a scale play. Think of it as an engagement play. And if I was to come along and say to you, okay, I'm going to put 200 of the people that love your product in a room you would have my hand off for that, right? If I can put the right audience in a room, which is the equivalent of a podcast or an email newsletter or a print magazine, then you're buying into that engagement rather than scale. Scale, you know, from my point of view, scale is dead. Um, I think every media organization needs to look at what, what the right scale for their audience actually is. We're not talking about Facebook scale anymore or 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 X Twitter scale. Yeah. We're talking about audi- real audience scale. No, and I mean that carries over across channels, you know, with newsletters. Well, let's 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 see how big our list is. And even like let's let's look at things like open rate, which you know are less um valuable and accurate than they were back in the day because of Apple, et cetera. But back to the magazine, I, I'd still dare anybody in the media industry to tell me what content is more curated than a magazine. You know, you look at your website metrics, which now, you know, everybody's confused because Google Analytics has changed their format and flipped it entirely. But you you see, you know, wow, I've got somebody on my site for, you know, one minute and 46 seconds. And that doesn't even take me through the first two paragraphs of an article I'm interested in a magazine. So I still really challenge the, the, the publishing industry to, to come up with a formula that is more attractive to readers than this curation that can be in a magazine. No? No, absolutely. And I think we, one of the things that we think very, very hard about is the pacing in the magazine. Um, we, our last issue had a feature on flat planning. You cannot flat plan a website. You know, it's just, doesn't, it just, it doesn't work. You don't know what's coming next on a website. Um, or, or it's purely chronological or whatever. Where we, we've set and we flat plan a magazine. Joanna's really, really good at flat planning. 
and, and she did a, a, a little kind of masterclass with two people that she's worked with. Um, one worked for one of the biggest women's magazines in the UK. The other one works for one of the biggest craft magazines in the UK. And had this whole conversation about how do you decide what goes where in a magazine? Years ago, I was taught by a person that we both know, Abe Peck. I was taught by Abe that the best magazines are bell curves and you ease people in and then you grab them and then you take them out gently again. Um, that still works. That, that kind of magazine craft is still really, really important. So how, how do you approach the selection of topics and, and voices for each of the issues of Grub Street? Speaking of flat planning, et cetera. Well, so partly it's about what makes us laugh. Um, um, so our first issue was the Don Quixote issue. What kind of idiots still make magazines? Second issue was the Jerry Maguire issue. Show me the money in magazines. Third issue was the Walking Dead issue. Um, why won't print just lie down and die? Uh, and our fourth issue is the the uh, Star Trek Next Generation issue. Um, where's magazine's next generation of uh, readers and leaders? So we've got we've always got a starting point, and what we're trying to get at is the biggest issues that we see in the industry. You know, we've got ten of those planned out. You know. God willing that we survive that long. Um, and it's, it's about that big cover story. Uh, people are saying, why is print not gone away? You know, the first interview I did for that story was with uh, a guy here in the UK called Rob Orchard. And uh, Rob publishes a magazine called Delayed Gratification, which is a beautiful, beautiful t print title, very heavy on infographics. Rob was honest enough to admit that 10 years ago, he did a TEDx talk in Madrid, I think, where he said there won't be a print newspaper left in any major economy. And there is, you know, there still is. And, and that idea of why print won't lie down and die was really interesting to us. So if that's your starting point, and we tell that story over whatever, 10 pages, we're then trying to find stuff that fits alongside that. So this time we had a, a bunch of guys that do uh, research around the sustainability of print and the myths that exist around print. One of the, one of the statistics that they put out was the idea that people think that paper is wrecking all the forests in, in the world. And actually there's more more um, forests in, in Europe than there's ever been because you need new paper, you need new pulp. So they're printing trees, they're planting trees all the time. Um, so that was one of the stories that went with that. The, the flip of that was I did a little piece on uh, digital's hidden carbon footprint where we talk about digital like it's uh, sustainability, issues that, you know, there's no such thing around it. And that's absolutely not true. AI is a nightmare for, for um, environmental sustainability. Yeah, look at crypto. You know, that was the same, right? Yeah, exactly. So we try and, you know, there's a theme building, but then we also did a piece on uh, a, a couple of people that do an LGBTQ magazine in print and the importance for that community of the magazine actually being delivered direct to people and specifically to younger people whose parents may not know that they're gay or but may not have come out to their parents. So if that magazine comes in an envelope direct to your house, it makes you feel part of that community without you know, exposing you to whatever else, you know, the problems that that might cause you within a particular type of family. Um, yeah, it's just, it really is all things that we think are either going to teach people something, inspire people, or make them laugh. So the next issue, we just sat, we had a meeting this morning about the next issue, and we realised that there wasn't anything particularly fun, like, like daft fun 
So we came up with a game, a snakes and ladders. I don't know what you call it in the States. Do you call it snakes and ladders? I think shoots and ladders was what I recall. So basically, if you're doing well, you go up. So in the UK, it's you go up a ladder. And then if you're doing badly, you go down the snake. You basically get eaten by the snake. So we're looking at doing this little game inside the magazine that's you know, what What would take you up the ladder if you're a magazine publisher and what's the snakes that are going to give you problems? <laughs> audience Architect is a content service of MACMA, the Media Audience and Content Marketer Association. Supercharge your career with MACMA's paid membership. Connect with industry experts, thought leaders, and like-minded professionals. Expand your knowledge and stay ahead with networking events, webinars, and conferences. Join MACMA today for unparalleled value and professional growth. Check us out at www.themacma.org. Thanks, as always, to Lisa Pastilli and the gang at MACMA. But yeah, it really is that idea of what those three things that I said, learning, inspiration, and fun. Those are the things that, that, and I think that's where we see ourselves as a different kind of B2B magazine. We're, you know, we're talking about the business of magazine to magazine professionals mostly. There's some people that just love magazines, obviously. But we don't want to do that in a way that's really academic or really self-serious. We want to do it in a way, as I said before, that people feel Oh yeah, I remember why this magazine, this magazine game is so much fun. This is a job I want to keep. I don't want to lose it. So, how have you been received in in the community so far? And like any anecdotes from anybody that you you've converted back <laughs> to, uh, to to inspire I mean, them to reinvent themselves? The most interesting thing is when you meet people. Or hear about people that say, oh, yeah, I recognize that. I know that magazine. Like, Joanna was, we were we were nominated, the, so there's a association here called the British Society of Magazine Editors, uh, and we won their Instagram competition for cover of the month, which got us into their annual competition for co- B2B cover of the month. We didn't win. We lost to one of the biggest marketing magazines in the country. So wow. there was no, there was no real surprise there. But Joanna was actually nominated independently, uh, for editor, editors, editor of the year. So they have this category where other editors will nominate someone that makes a difference to the field. And Joanna was nominated for that. And that was such a buzz. You know what? Everyone. Everyone says, oh, awards don't matter until they actually win one. And it's like, what? Um, so that was, that was really interesting. And that felt really good. Again, she didn't win, but she lost to the Sunday Times, the lady that runs the Sunday Times magazine. So you can, you know, that's pretty good. Other ones, it's just like, um, we had a conversation with someone the other day who's a graphic designer who had been talking to another graphic designer and uh, she said she's, they started talking about the magazine between them, which was fun. That was fun. You know, the idea that people know what it is. I don't know if you subscribe to Kevin Kelly's idea of a thousand true fans. Do you know that piece? No. So Kevin Kelly is one of the guys that started Wired and he wrote this thing. Um, I don't know. It must be, easily 10 years, maybe longer. And it was the idea of a thousand true fans. You can build a business on a thousand true fans. Some people don't like that idea because it's, you know, it's limiting and it's it's maybe not the way we want to work in the world of unicorns or whatever. But for us, if we could get that thousand people that would buy pretty much anything that we did, because they trust us, because they know our vibe, they know what we're about. That would That's definitely our first ambition, is to find those thousand people. Uh, and then, you know, we can start doing some other stuff. But the people, it's not a thousand, but maybe there's a hundred that love us, they talk about us, they post about us, 
you know, the hashtag I bought the Grub Street Journal or, or whatever hashtag we ended up using. And that idea of community is such an overused word in media. The idea of building that community, I think, is a really, really big deal for us because, you know, it's a magazine for magazine people. So the idea is we've got to get people involved. We've got to get them talking about it. We've got to, we do this feature. One of, I think one of our most fun features we could, is basically the, we call it magazine monkeys. So our first one was, we ask a question. First one was, are designers just coloring in monkeys? <laughs> and then the other one was our our editors and journalists just typing monkeys. <laughs> and then the last one was our salespeople just money monkeys. <laughs> and for each of those, we we write them and we write them in a way that you know is very irreverent, lots of swear words, whatever. But we ask the community to tell us what their experience is, you know, so that. <clears throat> the the design one was brilliant. The guy, you know, we asked them, the guys, what's the dumbest thing you've ever been asked to do? And some of the stuff we got back was brilliant. It was like, oh, well, um, could you make this person in this photograph smile? And they're like, well, no, how can I do that? <laughs> and the person said, oh, can't you just Photoshop their mouth the other way around? <laughs> and then another one, he said, um... And there's a bus in front of the storefront that we want to represent in this photograph. Can you remove the bus from the photograph? <laughs> well, maybe some magic AI can do that, but no, we cannot remove a bus and show what's behind it in a photograph. Nuts. You know, and the sales guys is always like, oh, can you just fill this space with a nice $10,000 ad or whatever? That should be nice and easy. Uh, it's just getting people's real experience, but then having a lot of fun with it. So representing the community in a way that makes other people in other parts of the community understand more, maybe have more empathy for what a designer's job or a salesperson's job or an editor's job is, but having fun with it, trying to make people laugh with it. Um Back to the money for a minute. I think, what was it? Issue two was the money issue, the Jerry Maguire yeah. issue. So, you know, you've said from the start that you guys have, you and Joanna have, have day jobs. Um, but what is your business model for Grub Street Journal? I, I, I believe people pay for it. Um, yep. And yep. tell me, tell me, tell me about that. So the business model initially was very much about cop single copy sales. We sell direct through our own website, grubsheetjournal.com. Um, but longer term, we're going to have to look at advertising because when you think about it, if I sell 10 copies is a hundred pounds. If I sell one ad could be 500 pounds. Um, so it, you know, it's it's a it's a moving target in that sense. We knew that we could make a magazine. We're both editors. We're both writers. We've got a brilliant designer that we work with. So we knew we could make a magazine. And if you know you can make a magazine, then your your starting point has to be selling that magazine. And that's hundred percent where we started through Shopify. Um, the, sh the setup for Shopify was hard work, but once we had it going, it is really, really good. It's a great system. Um, and in that sense, our business model initially was just to sell copies and build that audience, get people talking about it on social media, try and build out a newsletter, try and really bring people together around those issues as we launched them. I think the next thing for us regarding like audiences subscriptions we didn't we didn't introduce subscriptions from day one because being brutally honest we didn't know how many issues we were going to make <laughs> um now that we've kind of hit a rhythm we've introduced subscriptions on a quarterly charge so we're not taking money in advance but we will take you know money from people on on uh recurring payments um our next step there 
particularly for people in the States and, and wherever else, is to introduce um, some form of digital content. We haven't got any digital content at the moment. I mean, the reason for that is because I'm not a huge fan of turning page editions, PDF conversions. That's just my thing. It's been, I've been like that since I worked at Advanced Star, actually. Um, and we, we, we worked very closely with Nextbook at a time to try, to try and do something that wasn't just a straight up bog standard PDF conversion. And I th that worked well. We haven't had the time or, or resources to do that at the moment. But I think we've got a nice solution that's, it's not competing with the magazine in a production sense. It's a, it's a, a lesser reading experience in the sense of you're not sat back reading a print coffee of a magazine or a really nice paper, but it's a functional reading experience in the sense that you can read it on your phone or you can read it on your screen and you get the information without, mm -hmm. you know, the, the kind of what we consider to be the freemium experience of reading it in print. So I think that's the next thing we'll do, and we'll try and do that, if not before the end of the year, then very early in the new year. And then we haven't actually sold advertising actively yet. We've had some advertising. We've had some support from people. It's because people want to support what we're doing rather than because they think they're going to reach thousands and thousands and thousands of magazine people. Um, but longer term, I think we're going to get more commercially focused on the ad sales thing. That's that's very much on my to-do list for 2024. It, you know, it just makes sense, right? It, commercially, if you can sell advertising, you can you can make more money quicker. Uh, it's just it's the hard work of selling advertising. I am not an ad sales person, as you well know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, then... Looking forward, I think the business, the business could go in different directions. We can do um, events. Uh, we're actually planning an event for May. It'll be called Magazine May Day. Um, and we'll hold it in the north of England rather than in London, just because we want to prove to people that there are actually magazines outside of London. Um, we're also thinking about doing some online training. You know, bring that kind of irreverence to the, the idea of how do you plan a magazine, what's hard about making money in magazines, why are designers different from editors, just trying to get, again, inside those community issues. You know, we, I, again, we had a conversation with someone the other day and they were talking about training budgets are not great in magazine at the moment. You know, in any media organization, it's one of the first things to get caught. And certainly training people how to do the jobs that they're already doing better is sometimes not top of mind for, for publishers because they want to be doing the next thing, right? They're thinking, oh, I've already taken care of subs. I've already taken care of editorial. I've already taken care of design. But actually people... People like support in the jobs that they're actually doing. They like to hear from other people. They like to hear about other ways people are doing things. So I think that kind of training aspect of things, but you know, done in a Grub Street style, not in a not in a forty minute webinar with KPIs and spreadsheets. No, no, I can't. I can't ever see you guys doing that. Hey, like I also think though that aside from publishing companies that. There would there would seem to be sprouting, you know, entrepreneurial efforts into the magazine business. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I protect. I don't know about the states as much. There are independent magazines in the states, but in the UK, there are that scene is really interesting, and it tends to be. <laughs> tends to be people that have got an issue or uh, an, no, I was going to say an axe to grind, that's a negative way of looking at it, but it's people that want to get stuff out there, passion projects um, that they want to say 
here's what I think, here's what my community thinks, get involved, here's a print magazine. And I think there's that, that kind of DIY ethos is definitely there in the independent magazine scene. There's a brilliant, brilliant magazine. They're, they're an annual. They come, they publish out of Wales. And I had the absolute pleasure of meeting these guys at a conference, um, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And they were just brilliant. And they, they were just so enthusiastic, so funny, so engaged with what they're trying to do. What's the magazine? Um, what what do they cover? It's called The Paper. Um, their first issue is about Wales. It's about being a fair, you know, they're, they're a lot younger than I am. It's about being Gen Z or a, or a, a, a late millennial in Wales and in some ways how shit that can be and in other ways how incredibly funny and and uh, inspiring it can be. Um, and it's a bonkers thing. It's like, it's huge. You know, it's like the New York Times size. It's massive. Or well, certainly the New York Times magazine. But it's about, you know, they, they saw this format. They decided that's what they wanted to do. They went to Kickstarter. They funded it through Kickstarter. They made this magazine. And now there's this whole community growing up around them. That it's just really enjoying what they do. And I think that could, so that, that's the kind of youth culture type thing. Other people are doing that with food and drink. We know some people um, that publish a magazine called Tonic and they publish it because, you know, it's a nice market to be in and they like food and drink. And actually they're just drink, not food and drink. <laughs> um, and, you know, other people are making magazines about sandwiches and cheese and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a kind of subculture. I think maybe what's also interesting is bigger publishers getting back into print in a different way. So the, the music magazine in the UK was, when I was growing up a long time ago, was called NME, New Musical Express. New Musical Express went through a bunch of different um, incarnations, went free, um, but didn't survive uh, as a free title, came out of print, and has now gone back into print, but on a much, much reduced frequency and at a much higher price. And that's interesting, right? They have a website where they pump all this news about music out, that web, you know, socials and on the web. That's the current stuff that's up to date. But then the print title, it's not even on the newsstand. You know, it's direct sales. And I think those kind of models are interesting. Other people going back into to print because the argument that they will make, and I think it's true, is that people are just done spending all their time online. I'm not saying that print will ever replace what we do online. We couldn't do this on, on print, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we can't podcast by letters. It's not going to work, right? If you're sending snail mail to each other. <laughs> so there's things you can't do. Equally, I think there's things you can't do online that you can do in print. And then people are starting to play with that a little bit more. My big worry is that the bean counters went out and publishers aren't allowed or willing to take the risk that print can involve because there's real costs you know to print even a thousand copies of a magazine is is not insignificant yeah especially with all of the rest of the effort on the digital side um justifying that you know you mentioned i'm gonna like hit up young people um so if you were your kids are not of that age, maybe like in like later high school, college, uh, university. But if they were, um, would you say that you know a career in in magazine writing or in magazine um, in magazine in the magazine world someplace was something that they should think about? I mean, they're all scared shitless that AI is going to take every job that 
that that they were thinking about anyway. So is this a a cool counter job, counter field, or what would you tell? How do we get young people in into this world again? I think the first thing is it depends how much you care about money, right? If you want to be really, really wealthy, then magazine publishing is probably not the place to be. Some magazine salespeople maybe do pretty well at it. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly designers, editors, um, any of the admin people, it's not the best paid industry in the world. But if you care about making a difference in even a very narrow area, like a particular business or a science field or whatever, there's a magazine for everything, right? So they can, young people can feed their passions in that sense in a way that they can if they become a, I don't know, stockbroker. You might make way more money as a stockbroker, but there's so many people. I've talked to someone about this again the other day. This is one of the joys of my job. I get to talk to loads and loads of people about magazines. And this guy was telling me that there's loads of people coming out of finance. You know, they've made their money. they made millions, whatever. And the first thing they do is they start a magazine because it's cool and it's fun and it's, and it's something different. Well, if you don't care about the money part of that at the beginning and you just want to make a decent living, but you want to do something really interesting, then I think there's worse jobs in the world than magazine publishing. AI is an interesting one. You know, AI is a mimic, right? It's not magic. It only does what people have done before based on what people ask it to do. Mm -hmm. That might change. But the one thing that is going to separate good publishers from bad publishers is that the good publishers will put resource and time and energy into their people, into their human beings. And those people will be the tastemakers, they'll be the curators, they'll be the news gatherers, they'll be investigators. Those are things that the computer cannot do. AI will rip other people's content off all day long and republish it to people that aren't really engaged or don't really care. But if you want to develop a properly engaged audience, you're going to need human beings. Now, a human being that is really good at using AI will take the job of a human being that doesn't use AI. So I'm not saying ignore AI, but see it as a tool in that sense. And the idea of, you know, maintaining a human voice, a personality, insight, being able to join the dots, being able to sort of bring together two things that don't really seem related and make a really great story out of it. Those are things that people will always be able to do better than machines. And magazines is a great environment for that. Well, you sold me there. Um, and all the discussion about AI reminds me of something that James Hughes said at, at MACMA um, holiday extravaganza that he would have liked to have taken credit for, but he had to give you the credit. And that is um, that this is the end of the beginning can you tell can you tell us what you meant by that oh. well it's nice of him to give me credit for something like that that's uh i, I owe him a beer <laughs> um my kids and i talk about stuff all the time and we talk about um where we are and i think where that came from was this idea that digital transition is you can't transition forever, right? And, you know, it's inherently there is a beginning and an end. So what I think is happening is that companies that were going to adapt and change and develop a digital business model have probably done most of that. That doesn't mean it's a good business model, right? Right. So what they have to do now and this is where I would give credit to actually a, a lady called Lucy Kung, um, who's at uh, Reuters. 
She talks a lot about this. If you've got that digital foundation, how do you make that profitable? How do you make that work? How do you train up the people that you've got in your business to work within this new paradigm rather than this transition paradigm? You've got a digital business model, but is it the right digital business model? Is it based on still based on advertising or is it going to be based on reader revenue or are you going to have events and how are you going to make all of those work inside this company that you have transitioned to being digital first or or what digital only in some instances i guess um so that the beginning part i think has been the last i don't know 20 years 25 years now um, but that, I think that part, if you haven't started that now, then God help you. You know, if you haven't started that transition, what were you doing for the last 20 years? <laughs> you know, you and I were working on this stuff in what, 2012, mm -hmm. 10 years ago. And we'd both been working on it in other places for years before that. So for anyone that hasn't started yet, my God, you must have an amazing business model because I don't see how you can work without digital. But the, the, the fundamentals in that sense will be about thinking digitally, but have you done all the things that you need to do? And that's the next bit. You know, have you got an e-commerce strategy? Have you got an online event strategy? Have you got a newsletter strategy, a podcast strategy? Are all the bits in place? And that, I guess, is the second phase there is making sure that, yeah, you're thinking digitally, but are you acting digitally? That's kind of what I meant by that. Well, I, I really appreciate um you're, you're talking us through that. And obviously, then this great balance against the foundational product that um, whether we want to admit it, the magazine still is. And, and I think you've made an excellent case for it. Now, how, how would people in our audience uh, subscribe or buy an issue of Grub Street? And, and if, they, if they, God forbid, want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Well, if they want to get in touch with me, the best place really is LinkedIn nowadays. Used to be Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, but not now. Um, it's a hellscape. So LinkedIn is the best place to find me now. Just look for Peter Houston, look for Grub Street Journal, look for Media Voices, and you'll find me. Um, getting, a, getting a copy of the magazine in the States is a tough one. Uh, because we're not r shipping directly, you can buy it in this. You can buy it from uh, an online retailer in the UK called Newsstand.co.uk. Um, we have some customers in the states, um, but we're also trying to build up some distribution um, through magazine retailers. Um, I know we're in los angeles somewhere but i don't know the name of the shop i should have looked that up and we're also in toronto if you've got anyone up there but that's a slow process um so newstand.co.uk you can buy the magazine it'll be shipped to the states but we will definitely definitely be releasing digital content uh as i say not if not before the end of the year then early in the new year well, good luck um, through that and also your event and everything in your world, Peter. Um, it's just been a joy to connect with you again on the podcast. And as I said, we'll be doing so offline as well. Um, thanks for joining Audience Architect today. It was the best. An absolute privilege, especially after following Mr. James Hughes. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I feel blessed by that. Audience Architect is a content service of MACMA, the Media Audience and Content Marketer Association. Supercharge your career with MACMA's paid membership. Connect with industry experts, thought leaders, and like-minded professionals. Expand your knowledge and stay ahead with networking events, webinars, and conferences. Join MACMA today for unparalleled value and professional growth. Check us out at www.themacma.org. Thanks, as always, to Lisa Pastilli and the gang at MACMA. 